0: Good morning, Hope Church. How are we doing? Good. A little damp today. A little damp for my taste, but um, it's not snow, right? So that's a good thing. I want to begin by asking a question. You guys know I like to ask a lot of questions. But how many of you remember back to when you were young? Yeah, right. Yeah, I too remember way, 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 way back when I was young. And uh, there was a time when I really enjoyed outdoor living. I liked camping. And we were real campers. We slept in tents. Now, I know that some of you say that you go camping. But your idea of roughing it is when your fully equipped motorhome is parked more than 500 feet from the heated pool. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not not knocking that. As a matter of fact, at this point in my life, which is kind of a polite way of saying, yes, I'm old, but at this point, my body is just not able to handle sleeping on the ground especially in extremely cold weather. But, you know, we used to have fun doing that. We would, if you can believe it, purposefully go camping when there was snow on the ground. Now, as a parenthetical note, I just want you guys to know that my wife was never, how shall we say, stupid enough to do that. It was myself and a friend of mine but you know we had tents and sleeping bags that were made for that kind of condition but even though when i think about it it still sounds a little bit insane and i think to a degree we probably were a little bit insane but we pictured ourselves as as hardcore outdoorsmen we were we were we were hardcore outdoorsmen and we wanted to climb we wanted to climb we did a lot of technical rock climbing but we really wanted to be alpine climbers. We wanted to be mountaineers. Honestly, there was a time when I wanted to summit on Everest. I watched movies about it. I read books about it. I really thought it would be fun, and I still do. But I'm old, so that's probably not going to happen. But back then, when we had a goal like that, we knew, we were smart enough to know that you don't just start out on Everest, right? You have to build up to that. So we started climbing in the United States, out west. And I discovered and fell in love with Grand Teton National Park. If you've never been out there, you got to go because it is absolutely spectacular. It is gorgeous. So myself and my climbing partner, we, we made several trips out there to climb a number of the peaks in that range there, the Teton Range. And prior to our first trip out there, we knew that we had no business being out there without something to guide us on the way. So we did some research, and we both invested in the most recommended book on climbing in the area. It's called A Climber's Guide to the Teton Range. Now, I had a picture of it, but we... We couldn't get it to to go, so, but I do still have the book. I keep it under glass in my climbing museum. Yeah, it's a good thing you laugh, because that is a joke. But I still have it, because there's there's good memories associated with it, and um, I may use it again someday. I don't know. We'll see. My wife is looking at me like, oh yeah? Not with me, you're not going to. This book, though, is what we use to guide us. It guided us on all of our climbs. It showed different routes up the various mountains. It shows degree of difficulty for the climbs. It pointed out potential dangers that we may encounter. And let's be honest, you know, climbing a mountain is inherently dangerous. One wrong step, and you could tumble to your death. So this book... It gave us these, these different routes to the summit, and normally we would take the easiest. We might have been crazy, but we were not completely stupid. And there was just tons of information in this book. It shared the history and the geology of the range, the history of climbing out there. It even gave us park rules for climbers and campers. By the way, one of the rules was you had to check in at the ranger station on your way in, Tell them where you were going, what mountains you were going to climb, when you were going to be back, and check out before you left the park. And we used to joke that they did that so that they would know where to search for our lifeless corpses if we didn't return. Now, I joke, but there actually is a certain amount of truth to that. Well, once we understood how valuable and how accurate this book was, We came to refer to it, and I'm not kidding you, we came to refer to it as the Bible. If we found ourselves in a situation and there was a question about what to do next or where to go, we'd look at ourselves and say, what does the Bible say? Because we knew that that book would keep us on the right path and steer us away from danger. you guys have any books that you rely heavily on? Books with instruction, directions, guidance? Maybe it's something as simple as a recipe book that has all your favorite recipes. You know, you'd be lost in the kitchen without it. You know, if you're working on an old car, maybe you're going to rely on a repair manual to navigate under the hood. Electronics technicians, they depend on schematics to service computers and other devices. What about us as Christians? Do we have anything like that that we can place our trust in? I should see a lot of heads going like this and a lot of yes and a lot of amens, right? The Bible, the Bible. We place a lot of faith in this book. As a matter of fact, we stake our lives on it. Why? See, regardless of the fact that this is the best-selling book of all time, you guys know that, right? That's the best-selling book of all time ever. Despite that, there's still a lot of confusion about this book. Here we go again, right? Dealing with confusion surrounding one of the bedrocks of the Christian faith. If you were with us over the past few weeks, we looked at the confusion with regard to Jesus. Jesus. And I think we cleared up that confusion in our minds. But you know what? We used this book to do it. How can we know with certainty that this book can be trusted? Well, the good news is no book has been attacked so ferociously over the years, yet still stands as the Word of God. Today, we begin an exploration of this book that we call the Bible, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be answering a lot of questions about this book and clearing up any confusion that may surround it. As Christians, we put a lot of faith and trust in the words that we find in the Bible, so it stands to reason that we know as much as we possibly can about the book that we call the Word of God, and we should be able to Defend it as the Word of God. So what exactly do we mean when we say the Word of God? Well, there are several different meanings taken by the phrase in the Bible, and it makes sense to understand the differences as we begin this study. Now, very often, the Bible refers to Jesus as the Word of God. At the beginning of John's Gospel, we read In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And John makes it clear that this reference is to Jesus. Later in chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in Revelation 19, John sees the risen Jesus and says, He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And in His person and in His words, we see the character of God as well as the will of God for each one of us. Now, another meaning to the phrase, the word of God, are the words of God himself. And there are several ways that God has spoken to us in the past. For instance, by his decrees. In Genesis 1, God decreed, let there be light. And there was. God created by decree the animal world as well. In Genesis 1:24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And actually, the psalmist really kind of pulls it all together for us, makes it very, very clear in Psalm 33 by the word, or in other words, by the decree of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. It was by the decrees of God that all things were created. God also communicated with people by speaking directly to them, a literal personal address. God spoke to Adam and Eve directly in the Garden of Eden before the fall, right? I mean, when sin entered the world, it destroyed that perfect relationship that they had with God, but up to that point, he spoke directly to them. Another example is the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, we read, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In the New Testament, God spoke from heaven, Matthew 3:17, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Friends, words like this came directly from the mouth of God. Now another way that God spoke was through human lips, through the prophets that he rose up. And these words spoken by these men are as authoritative as if God had spoken them himself. Listen to what God says to Jeremiah in chapter 1 of his book of prophecy. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. And throughout the Old Testament we see we see many of the prophets beginning sentences with with phrases like, Thus saith the Lord. And the words that follow are words from God spoken through human lips. Now probably the most important way that God speaks is through the written word. All that we find written in the Bible, are the words of God recorded by men. In Deuteronomy 31, we read that Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests. In Joshua 24, we read, and Joshua recorded, or in other words, he wrote these things in the book of the law of God. I love what God says to Isaiah in chapter 30 of his book of prophecy, Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the word Lord's instruction. See, every word that is written in this book is there for us as an everlasting witness. Because, like the nation of Israel... We, too, are rebellious. Our nature is sinful. We need this word from God. And because this book contains all of the previously mentioned methods that God uses to communicate, the Bible is going to be our focus of study today and in the coming weeks. Now I want us to consider for a moment, what if this is not the Word of God? As I mentioned at the start today, there's still confusion out there about this book. There are many who would have you believe that this is just a good work of literature, just a good book, nothing more than a collection of nice stories, some of which may or may not have actually happened. Oh, there may be some kind of nice teaching in it, but it, you know, it's not a word from God. If that is true, if that is true, then life, friends, would have very little, if any, meaning at all. We would know nothing of eternity. We would know nothing of eternal life. We would know nothing of salvation no roadmap for life, we'd be lost. However, if this is truly the word from God, then, then we can see God, we can see the revelation of God, we can know him to the degree that he can be known, right? Our lives then have meaning, our lives have a purpose. It's important what you decide about this book. Your decision has consequences. Geez, where have we heard that before? All these decisions that we have to make and all the consequences. But over the coming weeks, we're going to increase in our knowledge about the Bible. And we're going to come to understand that this is the Word of God. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is clear. It's necessary. And it's sufficient. All of that by way of introduction. And you guys are probably saying, wow, if that's the introduction, how long are we going to go today? I promise we'll be out of here by noon. Yeah, got a few chuckles on that one, right? But what I do want to do is, is, is take a few minutes to look at a passage from 2 Peter chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, We're going to kind of focus on verses 16 through 21. And I want to look at this because here, Peter helps us to begin to understand the truth about Scripture. Peter wrote this to the Christians then, and of course he's writing it to us now as well, to encourage us to live godly lives, that we might, as he says in verse 4, participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Very important. This is very important. It was important back then. It's incredibly important today. Now, at the time that Peter was writing this, there were some false teachers. Any false teachers hanging around today? Absolutely. But back then, these false teachers were accusing Peter and the other apostles of lying. So Peter writes this. Starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the New International Version here says cleverly devised stories. The original Greek is the Greek word mythos, mythos, which is better translated myth. The false teachers were accusing the apostles of fomenting myths, you know, fables, stories that they made up with with absolutely no value at all. But Peter declares here that the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of these men that they were tortured for, the testimony that they eventually died for, was not based on clever stories or half-truths. No, it was based on eyewitness testimony. They were there. They witnessed his majesty. This is not a myth. This is is history. And Peter shares some of that eyewitness testimony in verses 17 and 18. He says, he, meaning Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love.'" With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now, we can be absolutely sure that there were many occasions on which Peter was a witness to the majesty of Jesus. But this one here stands out. And I think it stands out with good reason. I mean, what he's referring to here is what is called the transfiguration of Jesus. And that is recorded in in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is huge. This is huge because Peter heard with his own ears the voice of God. These were words from God himself speaking audibly to Peter and James and John. They were eyewitnesses. They heard it. And when we understand this in the context of the Jewish culture of the day, the testimony of witnesses was huge. It was huge. It was of great value. Deuteronomy 19 tells us that at least two witnesses were required to convict someone of a crime. This was big. They were there. And if we take it a step further and look at the accounts of the Gospels, each one of the Gospels records the words, "'This is my Son whom I love,' With him I am well pleased. But all three go on to say, Listen to him. Listen to him. Because what he says is authoritative. The words of Jesus are, in fact, the words of God himself. There is no difference. And we have these words recorded in the Gospels. Peter goes on to say in verse 19, we also have the prophetic message, which is the Old Testament. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So, Peter's experience at the transfiguration was amazing, it, 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 it had to be just incredible. And it was confirmation of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. But the testimony of God's word about Jesus, about the Christ that we see in the Old Testament, was even more sure than this personal experience that Peter had. See, the fulfillment of the prophetic word confirmed is a certain, reliable testimony to the truth of all Scripture. All Scripture. Peter goes on to say we should heed what is written in the Bible and do what it says because it is a sure word. It is a dependable word. It is a reliable word. Psalm 19 tells us the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's like a light shining in a dark place. Psalm 119 says... Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Friends, the Scriptures illuminate the way. They reveal the hazards and the dangers. The Word of God makes it possible to walk without stumbling. Now, back in my climbing days, it was common to head for the summit before the sun was up. Completely pitch black. So we would rely on headlamps. Headlamps to light our way. Without them we would have no idea where we're at. We'd be stumbling around in the darkness and maybe even walk off a cliff and die. The Word of God is given to us to light our way in this dark world until the day dawns. Anybody have any idea what he's talking about when he says when the day dawns? It's when Christ comes back, right? when Christ returns when the day dawns and Christ returns we won't need the scriptures any longer Jesus will be our light when we were climbing in the dark and our headlamps and the sun came up we turned our headlamps off because we didn't need them anymore when the sun the s-u-n was up When the Son, the S-O-N, returns, we won't need the Word to light our way. Jesus will be the light of our lives for all eternity, too. Peter finishes this passage in verses 20 and 21 and says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter makes two important points here. The first point is with regard to interpretation. And Peter is addressing this problem of the false teachers of his time and their interpretation of Old Testament scriptures See back in Peter's day his opponents. They were they were twisting the Old Testament prophecies basically attempting to disprove Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies But Peter's challenging that and saying no you cannot massage the word to fit your desires You cannot pull passages out of context and try to make them mean something that they do not People were trying to do that back then People are trying to do it today. We see it. We see it. We see it happening in the world. Do we see it happening in the church? Unfortunately, friends, we do. There's far too many people, far too many pastors, far too many churches reinterpreting the Scriptures, manipulating them, trying to make them fit their desires, trying to change their meaning to justify their behavior. Saying things like, God didn't really mean that, did he? That sounds a lot like what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Satan is the great deceiver. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Or things like, oh, that's not how Jesus would have acted. Really? You can get inside the mind of God? See, Peter helps us to understand that the Word of God is clear. It's clear. It says what it says. It does not change. It is wrong and invalid to twist Scripture to our own personal meaning. Why? And the answer to this is really the second point that we find uh, that Peter makes at the end of this passage. Because this prophecy, this Word that we have, It doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Yes, it is written by men, but men set aside for this purpose. Carried along, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit. Their words inspired by God Himself. This is not some human invention. This is not some myth. It's not a sham. Peter makes this point at the beginning of this passage that we looked at this morning. And like Paul's testimony that we heard from last week, the testimony is true because they were there. They were eyewitnesses. This is real. So many decisions we have to make, right? And all the consequences of those decisions. But they're important. And like the decisions that we have to make about Jesus and what he did, we also have a decision to make about this book we call the Bible. We have to decide, is this the word of God or not? So you can't pick and choose, right? You can't pick and choose, you know, the parts that you like and then discount the rest. That's not how it works. Either it is the word of God or it is not. So let's go on this journey of discovery together. Let's explore this book that we call the Bible. We put a lot of faith and trust in it. It makes sense to know as much as we can about it. At the end, we will discover that this is, this is not a human book, although it's written by humans. It is a book that not only reveals the God of the universe, it's a book of answers. It's a roadmap for life. It's a book that points the way and will protect us from danger. And like that climber's guide that I put so much trust in when climbing, we too can trust this book implicitly because it will lead us to the summit in life. Everlasting life, eternal life with the one who created us and inspired this word of God. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you. We praise you, Lord, for who you are. And we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your word. You have revealed yourself. You have revealed your will to us. And, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we have your holy and inspired word. And we pray that as we study it, Lord, that that we would increase in knowledge and we we would learn to trust it implicitly and know that that it is our roadmap for life. Lord, bless this study. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.